you have a Bible near you or handy on your phone or whatever, open up to Genesis 37. Pull out the message note sheet as well. Those of you online, your host can direct you accordingly. Those of you in room, you can get the note sheet by scanning the QR code in the chair in front of you. Here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at how God meets us in those places of immaturity in our lives and invites us to a place of maturity by taking us to places that I'm going to call unexpected, unexpectedly marked with hiddenness and darkness to move us from immaturity to maturity. We're in this journey through the storyline of this book. So just want to invite you, those of you who already jumped in with us doing the Bible reading plan, we're reading through the Bible together this year. 240 plus of us now, I think, have jumped in. We've still got room for more of you. Jump in, and then the Sunday mornings, we're just going to kind of walk through the larger storyline of this book. And we started with the character Abraham because we said in Genesis 12, God's got an agenda uh, to move salvation history forward in the world. And his agenda starts with an elderly man named Abraham and an elderly woman named Sarah. And he says, I'm going to build a nation. The nation is going to be called Israel. And so I put uh, on the screen here, I want you to take a look, kind of the family tree. Here's Israel today. I just want to give you context and this is in your notes as well. So what we've covered so far, we, we just started in Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham. We call the divine go. Abraham 75 and Sarah 65 when he says he wants to start a nation with them. And so Isaac is eventually born. And we looked last week at the story of after Isaac's born, he took him to Mount Moriah. It was a 25-year journey for Abraham and Sarah. They kept trying and trying and trying. And it was barrenness, barrenness, barrenness until year 25, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, and Isaac is born. So the long-awaited son has come. And then he marries Rebekah, and they have twins, Jacob and Esau. And those of you who've been reading through the Bible, we just read through this section of the storyline. And then Jacob, he has 12 sons through four different women, two wives and two nannies. So you thought your family gatherings were complicated. So that's Jacob. That's a discussion for another day. We've, there's been a lot of, we've had a lot of chatter on the comment section on there. It's, it's difficult to understand how God's moving his purposes forward through the kind of mess of humanity that's going on. Shocker, people are not making decisions in line with what God wants. Such a commentary on the general human condition. But that doesn't seem to thwart God's purposes from going forward. And today we're picking up the story. You can see there that Jacob right? He eventually has a wife named Rachel, his first love, and he has two sons with Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Those are really two key names. And today we're picking up the storyline. In the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look about the journey with Joseph's life. Because the, the lineage gets traced from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. That's kind of the main. Now, there's a lot of side paths going on, just like in our story. We've got kind of a, a center thread, and then we've got some detours along the way. That's the storyline here. And it's good to know that God doesn't give up on us in the midst of those detours. And Joseph is 17 years old in Genesis 37. That's where we're going to pick up the story today. Verse 2, this is the account of Jacob, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Again, he's got 11 other brothers. The 12 sons of Jacob, hear this now, important point in the story, become the 12 tribes of Israel. So the book of Revelation says one day when we cross from this life into heaven, there's 12 gates in heaven, and above the gates is marked the name, you want to guess? 12 sons of Jacob. 
You're going to see the gate Reuben. You're going to be like, you have any idea how that, I mean, unbelievable, the storyline. There's a gate, Joseph, Benjamin, the 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel become really key in how the nation forms. See, God starts moving from individuals, moves to family units, and now he's going to start working with tribes and eventually nation. And that's where we're at in the story. He starts working with this family unit, this tribe of Jacob now with his 12 sons. It's verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more. Now, Israel, by the way, in the Old Testament, and super confusing. It'd be super helpful if God didn't do it this way. But Israel refers to a person named Jacob at times and a geographic territory called Israel. So, here he's referring to Jacob as a person, but is also called Israel. You tracking with me? Just shake your heads, shake your mask for me if you're like with me in this. So Israel, you have to kind of find context. Sometimes it's referring to geography, sometimes it's referring to person. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So there's the family dynamics of Jacob's house and Joseph. A lot of drama, a lot of complication. So here's the coat that Joseph like put on each morning when he would head out to do chores. Here's a picture of that coat. Best artist rendering they could come up with. You would tend to stand out. You agree? Like if you threw that coat on to your brothers, that's not what the brothers wore. That's only what Joseph got. Now their chores were Industrial, outside, hardworking, agriculture, you got your hands dirty. That's not the kind of outfit you wear when you're going to go do some hard work in the field. You with me? Joseph kind of gets the, the wine and cheese part of the chores. While his other brothers are, you know, hitting the plows and doing the weeding. And I mean, Joseph and his brothers don't like it and they're building all kinds of animosity and hostility, and there's jealousy, and there's all kinds. I mean, you picture there's the family dynamics of Joseph at 17. Now, look verse 5, what happens? Joseph had a dream. So one of the things we learn with Joseph is God's given him some type of gift, some type of supernatural ability to kind of interpret dreams and, and provide some guidance with what God's doing through dreams. It's a really interesting thing. So he has a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Well, you say, why? Well, he said to them, here he tells them the dream. Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Wow. So here's a picture of what the sheaves of grain, now that's not common vocabulary for us to, here's what sheaves of grain look like. So they would bind them, the stalks together, and do you see how they'd kind of tilt them in and that would allow the wind to dry them out. And so Joseph's got this picture in mind. He's like, hey, I'm kind of the, I had this vision. I'm kind of the big center stock and you're all kind of tilting in and bowing down to me. How are you feeling about that? Well, he's got his nice colorful coat on. See, sometimes giftedness doesn't come packaged with character and maturity right? There's just not an automatic, just because you're strongly gifted here, like Joseph's clearly got, there's some things God needs to deal with because doesn't, he doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 9. He has another dream, it says. And he told him to his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. And they're probably like, oh boy, this ought to be great. He said, look at this one. 
This time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Notice 11 stars. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So first point of reflection of our day, we're going to look at kind of two key principles out of this storyline for our lives today. The first thing I wrote down in this section, I wrote the combination of youthfulness and giftedness can, can produce foolishness. So I want you to see the, the intersection of youthfulness and giftedness can land you in a place that we're seeing here, foolishness, especially when it's like put on, you know, mixed with a robe of entitlement. You put a nice robe on that of entitlement and you miss some giftedness in there and you've got some 17-year-old immaturity in there and you've got, whew, you've got all the ingredients for that kind of a story. Stanford University professor Robert Harrison, he wrote this, uh, he did a, a lot of study on kind of our youth infatuated, youth enamored culture that we have today in North America. It's been going on for decades. And he did a study at Stanford and he wrote a book called Juvenescence. I'd never heard the term before, but I guess he, he kind of coined the term and made it famous through his book. Here's kind of a picture of the book title up here. And here's a couple of the quotes from the book Juvenescence. He said, Dr. Robert Harrison says, the young have become a model of emulation for the older population. Rather than the other way around, juvenescence. The word juvenescence means the state of being young. And so he wrote the book saying, well, it seems as if in America, the older we get, the more we become enamored with, like, being young. Versus what he's saying is, there, history, culturally, wisdom would be, there would be a respect, actually, that you'd look to the older. You see that? versus looking to the younger. And he wrote this other quote. He said, culturally speaking, be that in terms of dress codes, mentality, lifestyles, marketing, the world that we live in is astonishingly youthful and in many respects, infantile. That's what Robert Harrison said in his study. So I think Joseph is a great case study in juvenescence. Now hear me, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, don't tune me out yet. I love you. I love 17. I love the young culture. I have a 16-year-old and 20-year-old in my house. I love spending time with them and their friends. I love immersing myself in, with young people. I love trying to keep up with the latest kind of vocabulary when they say, you know, Dad, that's just not, that's kind of out, you know, that phrase or that word, Dad. You got to kind of pick up the pace, Dad, here and learn the new technology. And I know who to go to when I can't figure out how to do something with the newest app and on the phone. Like, I love hanging out with young people. I love being a part of youth culture. It's a wonderful thing. But hear this now, 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, I love you enough we love you enough to call you out of juvenescence, to call you to a place from the immaturity that naturally comes packaged when you're 17. Of course, Joseph at 17 is going to be struggling with this. But what God's seeing here and what we as a church are investing in, you know we're all in when it comes to next generation around here. So many of you are busting your tails week after week, pouring into children, pouring into students. We're all in. We want to prioritize and resource and build into the next generation. Yes, and we want to do it under this banner. We want to love the next generation enough to call them to maturity, 
to call him to move from the land of juvenescence. You don't just stay 17. Now, being 17 when you're 17, just fine. Makes sense. When you're 37 or 47 or 57 and still emotionally, relationally, kind of spiritually, mentally, all that, 17, that's a problem. That's what I'm getting at. And there's way too much of that going on, not just within Jesus' church. I would say culturally as a country, we're struggling with this. And listen, this is what happens when you're fixated on giftedness and you thrust juvenescence as like the, we're just going to strive for the state of being young, and you push that to the forefront without the real, what I'm going to call the scaffolding, the interior world, the beams of character development on the inside to uphold the weight of the gifts on the outside. Do you see what happens in leadership then? It's just implode. We're thrusting people into positions of leadership and authority and responsibility without simultaneously calling them to mature, to grow, to develop. Leave the land of 17 when you're 37, for goodness sakes, or when you're 57, or when you're 67. Leave the land of 17. That's what God's dealing with here with Joseph. See, here's what God, God's got the big arc of Joseph's life in mind. He sees exactly where he's taking Joseph. And those of you who are just reading through the Bible, we just read through where the end point is. See, God sees the end point, and now he's got a 17-year-old young. He sees some gaps of immaturity. He sees giftedness, and he sees, you know, just some kind of, what as I put in there, youthfulness. And then he's got like, there's a little, there's a good portion of foolishness going on here. Like, you know, Joseph, you shouldn't be sharing these dreams with everyone, certainly not with your brothers, your mom, and your dad. This is not going to help the family dynamic. You probably shouldn't strut around in that coat nearly as much as you are. Or what, like, I'm going to work with this guy. So, guys, I'm going to work with him in this space. And I would argue today that within the church and culturally, we don't have a giftedness crisis going on. I think we've got a formation crisis, or in the language of the New Testament, a discipleship crisis, a spiritual formation crisis, a Christ-like character development crisis. And just imagine with me now what might happen if we could see like the, if we could see a formation or discipleship revolution catch up with this fixation on giftedness and juvenescence. Could you imagine what might happen? I think we'd see a generation of leaders that change the world. And that's what we're committed to do. And that's what this, that's what we're, we're here as a church, that's what we're trying to do. And you're all a key part of that. And so now what we want us to see in the story this morning is God sees current reality, as the old saints used to say, you can't go from where you are to where you want to be unless you start right where you are. So you got to start right where you are. So here's where Joseph is, 17 years old, gifted clearly, but Got some immaturity, got some character gaps going on, got some things we need to work through. And so God's like, I'm going to invite him in to what's called, I'm going to call it like a school of formation, a school of discipleship, a school of character development. God's going to get to work on the beams on the inside of Joseph's life, and he's going to invite him into a space that is unexpected, not anticipated, not planned. And he's going to use his brother's sinful choices even to do it. So look what happens here, verse 12. Now his brothers had gone out to graze their father's flock near Shechem, Israel. Remember, that's Jacob said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he says. So 
Dad wants to send his brothers out again. He's probably got the big coat on. He's probably not too dirty and sweaty from the chores in the morning. He's got the easier part. Hey, go check on your brothers. Bring back a report. You know, that, that kind of a thing. And so brothers see him coming in the distance. Verse 17, uh, they, they find out. Joseph says he finds his brothers near Dotham. Verse 18, they saw him in the distance. Before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. <laughs> so there's the brotherly love going on. Lots of, right? They're like, we just need to kill this guy's irritating us so much. There's his coat again. There's the, here comes that dreamer, verse 19, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns, circle or underline that in your Bibles, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So here's a picture of a cistern. Cistern's like an underground water tank, okay? So there'd be like They'd be like an underground kind of a rock cave where they would store water then, and then they would use it to water the animals or just provide nutrients to the ground out there. And so there were a lot of these around that territory where he's at, and they're pointing, hey, we're going to toss Joseph in one of these, and we're going to leave him for dead, and we're going to get his robe and get some animal blood and tell dad an animal devoured him, and they'll have a funeral for him, and we're done with Joseph. Do you see the, the picture? This is like, that's their plan. And so now look at verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Now, who's Reuben? Do you remember from the family tree? He's the oldest. He's the firstborn, the oldest of the 12. So oldest brother stepped forward and says, oh, we, we shouldn't kill him. We've got to come up with a better plan than that. So don't take his life, verse 22. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert. Notice he's like, but he's all for throwing him in the cistern. But don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them. So you see Reuben's plan is probably to come back and pull him out at some point and take him back to his father. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Why is that important detail? Because he would have drowned, you know, so there's no water in this one. It was a dry cistern. They found something that he could survive for a bit uh, down there. And I want you to see, so second principle from this morning. So first thing you see is in Joseph at 17 years old, he's got giftedness, he's got youthfulness, and there needs to be some work of maturity. And here's it, God comes, God builds maturity in Joseph's life and in our lives through deep valleys and dark days. He invites us into cisterns. Cisterns, that place you never want to be, the never imagined being, the place that's quiet and dark, and quite alone, and difficult. And if you walk with God long enough, you'll find out God does some of His best work in cisterns. In the language of St. John of the Cross in the 1500s, it's called the dark night of the soul, where God leads you into this space. Here's what Pete Scazzaro says about dark nights in his book, Emotional Healthy Spirituality. He says, how do we know we're in a dark night? Our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. We feel the door of heaven has been shut as we pray. Darkness, helplessness, weariness, a sense of failure or defeat, barrenness, emptiness, dryness descend upon us. See, cisterns, cisterns slow us down. Cisterns invite us to take a look at things that in the normal pace and noise of life, we would just have a tendency to overlook. Cisterns from St. John at the Cross are like this 
this place of the dark night of loving fire that burn away attachments that God wants to see. Hey, you need to release some attachments here. And the way he does that is he invites us into cisterns. He, he leads us into a dark night, a dark night of loving fire, a place where you're just life just seems to hit pause and you just kind of take stock of things. And like Joseph, for the most part, gang, we don't choose cisterns. They're usually chosen for us. Like in Joseph's case, his brothers, it's a, kind of the sinful choices and acts of his brothers land him in the cistern. But God will work with that. Now, sometimes God just leads, leads you directly there. Sometimes it's a direct work of God, but sometimes it's just He uses just the circumstances of everyday life, and you land in a situation where you're with Joseph at the bottom of a pit, in the dark, quiet, and alone. And right there, I want you to see, is God's school for maturity. It's the place where he gets to work on some stuff in here. In Joseph's case, he's like, you know, Joseph, we got some more, we, we got some work to do. I've got some plans that you know not of, but here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit here alone, quiet, in the dark, and I'm going I'm to burn away some attachments that need to be burned away. I'm going to get to work on the beams of your interior world. I'm going to try to get the scaffolding set up so you've got the character on the inside to uphold the weight and responsibility of where I'm taking your life. I'm going to, I'm going to get to work in the cistern seasons of life. And man, you don't have to walk with God long enough to find yourself there. Many of you are very skilled at cisterns. You could give a much better commentary on this than I at this moment. But I can say this from my own experience and many a cisterns in my life. Here's the common themes I found. They're always very quiet, usually quite dark. I usually have no idea what's going on. I'm not quite sure how I got there. I'm not quite sure what in the world God's up to in that space. But here's the other common theme. God has met me there every time couldn't understand why or how or what, but I know this as I look back and I just plot my own journey or walking with so many of you through your own journey, I see a consistent thread. Cistern is the location for the formation of what needs to happen in here. There's stuff that happens in the bottom of that pit that just doesn't happen up on the surface in the noise and the chaos in the pace of everyday life. And this morning, I suspect, this morning finds some of you in your own personal cistern. I thought about last week, we had the, you know, the families up here dedicating their babies. It was a great picture of those families, and it was so fun afterwards to have some of the families talk and share together, like, their journey through how difficult it was for some of them just to, to have a baby. They'd struggle with infertility. And I thought about, you know, that's a cistern for so many couples who just long to have a child, and it's the cistern of infertility. And how dark and how difficult and how alone that is. And God, where are you and what are you doing? That, that's for some of you. That's where this morning finds some of you. Or for others, it's like the cistern of like, why is my marriage so painfully difficult to just keep going in? Why is it just the portion and cup of my marriage is just a cistern? That might be for you. 
or could be a a troubled and wayward child that keeps you up at night, a strained relationship with that. And you're just like, as a parent, you're just, it could be the cistern of grief and loss where you've just endured some, some goodbyes and some endings that just hit so deep on the inside. It's the cistern that's just, God, where are you? What are you doing? The dark night of loving fire. Or for others, it's on the career front. You've got the situation with your career and you thought it was headed somewhere and you end up in the land of nowhere. You're like at the biggest dead end of your career you've ever had. And there's this lining of disappointment in your soul. There's this ache inside of you that says, there's got to be more that you want your life to count for more. And you just feel stuck in a cistern. And on and on we could go. And so... What I want you to see this morning is the invitation of God. I want you to see how God is coming to Joseph in this space. And we'll see in the weeks ahead the fruitfulness from this space. You can't see it right now. When you're in the dark, when you're alone, when you've been tossed in there, you you can't see it there. It's, It's on display later. And boy, that's why community is so important. That's why we need one another to help us journey through these cistern seasons of life. You know, I learned this week about the Eastern Orthodox Church has two baptisms. Did you know that? Some of you have Orthodox background. You probably already know this, but the Eastern Orthodox Church has two baptisms. One, the traditional water baptism, but the second baptism, they say, is more important than the first. I was intrigued by that. What's the second baptism? They call it the baptism of tears. They said in the baptism of tears, it's where an individual learns compassion and empathy. And that's going to be really critical for them to be a disciple of Jesus the rest of their life. And so they invite them, and not just to the baptism in the water, but the baptism of tears. I think Genesis 37 is Joseph's baptism of tears. And I suspect for some of you, many commentary on 2020, no doubt a lot of baptism of tears this past year, and perhaps here at the beginning of 2021 That's where the Lord finds you. In your own personal cistern, in your own dark night of loving fire, your own baptism of tears saying, God, what are you doing? How are you at work? Where do I go from here? And what I want you to see this morning is I want you to see how how God is coming to you in that space of aloneness, in that space of darkness, in that space of hiddenness, and coming to you to deal with some stuff in here. He wants to get to work on the inmost being. So worship team, why don't you come back up? Here's how we're going to wrap up this morning. In a moment, I'm going to lead through a time of prayer and just thinking about how I wanted to wrap up this morning. For those of you in the room here, in a moment, I'm going to ask if you find yourself in a personal sister, and I'm going to ask you to stand up because we want to pray for you, and I think there's just sometimes important to do with our physical bodies, what we sense God speaking to us about, and just kind of putting a stake in the ground, say, that's where I'm at. And you're part of family here, and it's a safe place to be that. Online, here's what I want you to do online. All of you joining us, and if you're in a personal cistern, I just want you to jump on the chat right now, and I just want you to put one word, cistern, on the chat. That's all you need to put. And that's kind of your way of standing up and saying, that's me. It's one way of coming forward and saying, Lord, I don't know how I got here. I, 
I don't know where this is going. I, I can't see. But I believe it's an invitation this morning. It's a, it's a dark night of loving fire. I think there's some work of attachment work going on. There's some releasing of some things. There's some God wanting us to get at some things that we haven't been able to see. It's, it's that space. It's a baptism of tears. And if we'll stay with Him in and through the cistern seasons, we'll see a common thread. Do you notice in your life the people who are wisest that you most respect and trust and look up to for guidance and advice in life? Do you know there's a theme there? They're also the ones who've suffered most deeply, who've endured cistern seasons and come through it with God. As the early church fathers used to say, there's one way you can trace God using a life greatly, just track how they suffer deeply, and they'll be the, that's the groundwork. And so maybe that's for you this morning. And so online, cistern, put it on the chat right now, and then here in the room. Just going to lead through a prayer here. If you're in a personal cistern season, you just stand up right where you're at. Team's just going to kind of play quietly here musically. And we're just going to take a few moments and I'm just going to pray for us and pray that the Lord meets you in that space. I'm in a cistern. I, I can't fully see. I don't understand. But are you standing up? You're saying, God, I want to meet you there. God, I want to embrace what you want in this. Lord, it's a dark night of loving fire. Lord, it's a baptism of tears. It's God's key school for discipleship and formation and growth. He's coming for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these who are standing here and no doubt the many online who are just and maybe at home you feel free to stand up if you want to or just by you entering in the word sister and saying that's you see your people they're with Joseph here in chapter 37 they're most likely the cistern was chosen for them they didn't choose it and here they are think of the line in Psalm 54 that says surely the Lord is the one who sustains us God hears the cries of our heart So, Lord, you know each story standing here. Would you just personally meet them now and in their own personal dark night that I pray that this morning that the eyes of their soul would be enlightened in this moment to just see, God, how you're coming to them. Give them a handle on the work you're doing inside of them. 
pour out your spirit upon them. Deepen their faith and their trust in you. Enlarge their souls. I pray this would be a journey of what it means to move out of juvenescence and to become large-souled men and women for the kingdom. Enlarge our souls. Call us out of these places of immaturity. Bring us to maturity in Christ. We surrender to you. We trust you. We yield our hearts and we say, have your way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.